0: Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by OldSchoolShirts.com. Hey, check them out. You like to funk teams and leagues and T-shirt form? Well, you'll find them there, but a whole bunch of other stuff, too. Do you remember a radio station of the past or perhaps a mall that you used to go to? All kinds of great cultural and sports memories can be found at the great folks at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. And now, here's our show.
1: Time remaining 55 seconds. Spirit on top, nine to four. Looking for their second 10-goal game here tonight. Here's a long run. Tommy Molloy, Molloy all alone. Mulroy tees it up. He scores. Tommy Mulroy, short-handed goal for Hartford. Something we said we've got to be really careful of on the power play. It's important that top man gets back with any breaking player. Mulroy finds so much space to go forward. There we see the recovering defender, just Peter Manos to beat, strikes the ball clinically and well to Manos's left, diving low, but can't get down to save Mulroy's shot. He really hit that ball. He played very, very well over it and struck it very, very well top of the ball. Good shot by Tommy Mulroy. An X ex- Pittsburgh Morroy's first goal. Play right out front. 30 seconds remaining the in this, the fourth quarter. So Mulroy gets his first goal of the season. McKenzie inside, oh, it just hits the crossbar again. Finally, Charbonneau cleans it out. McKenzie to McNichol. Time running down, it's just a matter now what Pittsburgh's gonna win by as they are going to walk away with their fourth straight victory, a club record and a great tribute to Coach Lenny Billis as he has the Spirit on a winning way. That's the end of the game, the final score, the Pittsburgh Spirit 9, the Hartford Hellions 5. We'll be back right after this. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast Devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon.
0: All right, all right, all right. Let's get going, shall we? How are you? My friends, it's uh, Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, it's the podcast that you hopefully know by now is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. It's our little weekly excursion to many things forgotten uh, in the realm of pro sports. And we thank you for finding us either for the first time or for a repeat visit. We appreciate it. Um, we're bouncing back into soccer and uh, a, a delightful conversation with a very intriguing character in the history of pro- professional soccer, hell, soccer generally in this country, and I think emblematic of uh, the, the twists and turns and the torturous history, uh, especially in the modern game, uh, of, of the sport in the United States. Uh, our guest is Tom Mulroy, uh, to some known as Soccer Tom or Tommy Mulroy, um, longtime advocate of Uh, for the game, and we'll get into sort of the story as to how that passion has evolved over the decades. Uh, But like many, uh, in the early days of the 1960s and 1970s, uh, a uh, blue-blooded American player uh, finding his way, if you will, amongst this still relatively barren landscape in the United States when it came to this sport of soccer, uh, largely domiciled by ethnic um, enclaves and, uh, and a lack of appreciation or respect uh, by the big American sports and the uh, infrastructure of coaches and schools and that kind of stuff. But as you'll hear in this conversation, the, um, the journey for a lot of uh, American soccer players through the 1970s and 1980s, um, I wouldn't call it lonely, but it was certainly a, a relatively small uh, group of people uh, who, uh, for whatever reasons, found themselves... Uh, in love with this sport of soccer, uh, almost to the point of being uh, proselytizing uh, and or uh, uh, endorsers of or advocates for uh, or pied pipers, if you will. That's a term that uh, applies very much uh, to Tom Mulroy's career, both as player and uh, beyond that. Uh, And um, this is just a very uh, intriguing conversation. And it's very, very representative of what many uh, players of that era Uh, who went on to stick it out and ultimately become, uh, if you will, the first generation of uh, honest-to-goodness American-born stars. And we've talked to some of them in our previous conversations. Kyle Rowe Jr., a really good example, um, among a a myriad of others. Um, But Tommy Mulroy, uh, I think, is just indicative of the sort of stick-to-itiveness and the the belief, uh, despite uh, many of the sort of social conventions uh, against it, Uh, in the sport of soccer and a flame, if you will, uh, that uh, was kept, uh, especially in the dark periods. We've talked about this too, the mid to late 1980s when largely the NASL and and even the MISL and indoors was kind of sort of faltering and and in the NASL's case, gone away, just poof like that and and really sort of a nadir uh, for anybody of, of this generation of player and believer that uh, felt frankly kind of abandoned because there wasn't a whole lot going on in the professional ranks, and and the 1994 World Cup was uh, was not even on the horizon yet. And we all certainly know what's happened since then: MLS and, and USL and all kinds of other things. And you know, an embarrassment of riches now it still has plenty of problems. This pro soccer thing in the United States, but you know, these are are, are larger and modern type problems versus the existential ones. Uh, that buffeted the sport for uh, the 60s, the 70s, uh, the 80s and and early 90s for sure. Tom Mulroy is very uh, representative of of that time and so many different layers to this conversation. And I'm excited to bring it to you in a few moments time. But let's start with that clip uh, to kind of sort of set things in motion. Uh, And I think itself a microcosm of of our conversation. Uh, That was from a major indoor soccer league game uh, in its second season with the uh, Pittsburgh Spirit In their second season, and they were going to take a break uh, the following season, and they came back in a sort of new reincarnated spirit, if you will, the year uh, after. But I digress. Against the Hartford Hellions, this was January 26th, 1980. Now, this was uh, uh, a local broadcast that uh, aired in uh, Pittsburgh. This was an away telecast. Terry Lewicki, the early voice of the M.I.S.L. in the early years, you heard him and his two brothers. They were arguably the um, uh, I guess the chief operating instigators of this M.I.S.L. Earl Foreman and Ed Tepper, the uh, co-founders of the league. But uh, in terms of the various franchises and promotional, Terry was uh, especially somebody we'd love to have on the show, by the way, as one of any of the Lewicki brothers. Uh, but Terry was Terry's voice you would hear on many local broadcasts and even in some early national telecasts in places like uh, the USA Cable Network, et cetera, well, along with Paul Wright, who was the uh, color commentator. And that was in the Springfield Civic Center, where, if you remember, this is around the time the Hartford Whalers, uh, of the uh, now in the NHL at that time, uh, and the Hellions had to kind of dance around uh, the renovation of the— um, Collapse roof from the Hartford Civic Center. So uh, a lot of games for both of those franchises were uh, in the Springfield Civic Center that season. Um, the Hellions also played uh, in the New Haven Coliseum as well uh, in their uh, that first season of theirs. So uh, an inauspicious debut, but but again, also emblematic uh, because as you heard there at the end of, of that particular game, uh, another loss by the Hellions, which was uh, pretty commonplace for both of those their seasons before they moved to Memphis. The following, uh, uh, after the, the, that two year run, uh, Tommy Mulroy was uh, in the midst of all of that, and in, in that case, scoring a shorthanded goal that was his first of of that uh, that first season for the Hellions, but just one of the many stops. And again, this is emblematic of what soccer players of that that ilk that era. We're talking like, in this case, the mid to late 1970s, early 1980s, through the 80s for that matter, uh, to make a go out of it, uh, to be a a professional uh, in the United States. And uh, the Hartford Hellions playing indoors was, uh, and the MISL was a a new sort of lifeline for a lot of soccer players who who were uh, trying to make ends meet by playing in the NASL outdoors, or in the case of Tommy, uh, not only having played in the NASL, but also in the ASL, the American Soccer League, which at that time was uh, pretty much a division two plus, if you will, professional league, you know, in certain markets where the NASL was not and uh, thriving as well. But this is a great example of of sort of the various uh, franchise uh, roulette, if you will, that many players had to play. And in the case of Tom, the uh, the notion of playing outdoors, in his case, with the ASL. Uh, teams like the Cleveland Cobras and the New York Eagles, later the Fort Lauderdale Sun, um, but then uh, playing indoors uh, during the quote unquote offseason, uh, in essence, uh, enabling a full time, full season, full year's worth of, of play and the checks that come with that Pittsburgh spirit uh, being his team uh, that first year of the MISL, the Hellions, as we just mentioned, uh, but then uh, even the uh, New York Arrows uh, and uh, the New York Express, the ill-fated New York Express, and even the AISA, if you remember that, the second division, if you will, of indoor soccer with the ultimate champions in 1987, the Louisville Thunder. All of those teams uh, are, uh, are places that Tommy played. Um, and even in more interestingly, which is kind of where we start his professional journey, uh, was his first ever season as a professional, playing in the uh, North American soccer, soccer League with a team known as the Miami Toros. Now, if you remember the Toros, uh, they were the predecessor to what became the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. Uh, interesting stories there. But as we'll hear in our conversation, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the I guess the, um, the gelling of the fact that uh, Tom Mulroy was a professional soccer player uh, in 1976 in the top tier— in the United States, uh, itself was a story, and you'll hear his background story: how he became not only a professional over time, but frankly the uh, the challenges that he overcame in in his youth, not just from the uh, soccer ain't played here kind of thing dynamic. That's that's just pales by comparison to the the personal story and his upbringing and that kind of stuff, and people taking a chance on him and helping him, uh, trying to sort of uh, figure out what a pro career, whatever that could be. Uh, in in soccer in the United States and uh the um it's all encapsulated in a book of course uh, that we're going to promote for you right this very moment and the the cover of this book is is uh, crystallizes it too it's called 90 minutes with the king how soccer saved my life and on this cover soccer tom Mulroy is pictured uh defending behind uh, a uh, a sprightly uh, looking Pele playing for the New York Cosmos in 1976. Mulroy's on this Miami Toros team. Uh, it is a picture from a game in Yankee Stadium where the Cosmos were playing their home games that season, and uh, that picture just encapsulates it. You'll see it. We'll post it on the on the uh, the socials, and you'll see it all along for for the promotion of this show. Uh, but uh, just to, it's a pinch me moment for Tom Mulroy in that. You know, just a handful of years prior, here was a guy, you know, fumfering his way through community college, uh, playing soccer, uh, not doing so well in, in school, not really sure what he was going to be or do with his life. Uh, and here he is on uh, the, 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 the stage of one of the more famous stadiums in, in American sports history, playing against arguably at the time and, and since the world's most famous and greatest player, uh, and I, interestingly, the the where that player Pele scored one of his mo- most memorable professional goals ever, something I'm sure Tommy doesn't necessarily want to remember, but but certainly was an important part of American soccer. A a beautiful bicycle kick, uh, one of the very few that Pele ever uh, uh, achieved uh, in a pro game, uh, was 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 done on the on that stage, uh, on that surface against. Uh, Tom Mulroy and the Miami Toros of that year. But this is a a, a journey about the beautiful game, about how uh, uh, Tom uh, embraced that game and the game embraced him back. And frankly, not just all those uh, ports of call that we'll get into, which is obviously the excuse for our conversation, but what it's helped him do since. Um, And there, like I said before, at the outset, there is no more uh, passionate a um, purveyor of this sport. I, I said the term Pied Piper. That is, you know, uh, somewhat flippantly uh, uh, an appropriate term for Tom because uh, in his professional life, uh, promoting the game, professional through uh, uh, the, the World Cup of 1994, uh, literally going and in, in, in helping with, uh, with uh, community activity, getting kids interested in the game, uh, various pro journeys and teams, helping marketers discover the sport, um, things that we frankly take for granted today as uh, professional soccer has become uh, such a gigantic part of the American sports landscape. That wasn't the case in the 70s and 80s when he was playing, and it certainly wasn't the case in the 90s and the aughts when it was still very much um, early days, if you will, for uh, the American sports psyche to include soccer uh, as as one of its own. A fascinating, wonderful, and thoroughly enjoyable conversation coming up with our, our new pal, Tom Mulroy, as we discuss his life both on and off the field and with the sport of soccer. Again, the book is called 90 Minutes with the King, How Soccer Saved My Life. It is available wherever you can find good books. And of course, if you search up this episode on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, episode number 333, easy to remember, uh, you will find a few convenient links that will take you to uh, the hardcover or the Kindle version of said book. And uh, you will uh, enjoy it thoroughly, as hopefully you will this upcoming conversation. So here it is. Let's waste no more time. Here's our chat that we had with the great soccer Tom Mulroy uh, we had just before the holidays. Please sit back and enjoy, as always, our pleasure to bring it to you. Let's start from the beginning, because I actually grew up in the uh, northern New Jersey, Bergen County area. So um tell us and our audience where you grew up and um perhaps a little bit of how you stumbled into this soccer thing in your youth. And then maybe we'll get into the granular nitty-gritty stuff of, of all the other professional things.
2: Yeah, well, I um I'm a New York City kid. My mom and dad uh, met in uh New York when they were kids and married their high school sweethearts, what have you. The it's all in the in the book, but then um we moved out it was a big move out to the suburbs and uh my mom and dad got divorced and uh i moved to the suburbs with my mom to rockland county uh which is right outside of new york city just over the tappan Zee bridge or a border town to new jersey with burden county so not too far away we were neighbors and back then it was uh Typical American stuff. So we played ring Livio, hide and seek, you know, uh, all of those kind of games. Played stick ball, played uh tackle football on someone's front lawn, played basketball, played all the regular games. Soccer wasn't an option. Actually, when when in gym class you had soccer, everybody was like depressed, like, oh my God, we gotta play this game, you can't touch the ball with your hands, uh, so on. So that's where soccer was in in the world. If you played soccer at that time, you either spoke funny because you just arrived from somewhere else um, or you got cut from the football team. And this was in the the 60s. And uh, somehow the kid that lived across the street from me, his name was Paulie Bianco, his uh, dad ran the uh, Spring Valley Bar and Restaurant. Uh, not far from where we lived, a couple miles up the road. And he was an old Italian guy and it was a a typical bar grill, his Italian food specials, blah, blah. Well, at that time, Rockland County was being built. You know, it was uh, really expanding all the new houses, everybody moving to the burbs and the people building the houses, doing the construction were, were ethnics. They were, you know, Germans and Austrians and Norwegians and what have you. Um, and there was a big need for a soccer team, for an adult soccer team. And this, uh, my friend's father, Bianco, he sponsored the Spring Valley Men's Soccer Team. And they were playing in the German-American League, which at that time was... Really, the place to play, if you're in the Northeast, they um it was pretty much the highest level of soccer going on. If you look back to all the amateur cups, a lot of the cups were won from teams by there, the German Hungarians, the Greek Americans, so forth. And they were pretty much, in some cases, professional. All the players got paid, and uh, they represented their community. And at some point, they wanted to grow soccer and so they said look it's going to cost whatever twice as much to register your men's team if you don't have a kids team in our league so at the time my friend uh, paulie and and i used to go to his i say work but we didn't really work we used to go to his bar and restaurant on the weekends we were really being babysat and we'd make some pizza downstairs you know flatten out the dough or what have you and so we knew the, the guys that played because they came to the bar and restaurant after practices and after games on the weekend, he had showers downstairs, he sponsored the uniform. So that's where they always came. And it was uh typical of uh, uh, a small town in, in any country in Europe or in South America for that matter. And they sponsored the team. And so I wound up getting connected through, through that. They didn't have enough of their own kids and I got recruited. And I remember my first day we went there, I was in a pair of jeans and high top sneakers playing soccer. And I thought this is stupid, but my buddy Paulie and all these guys with the funny names that I couldn't understand what they were saying, even though it was English, um, got me hooked and that was it. I fell in love.
0: So it was almost like one of those enclave, uh, kind of, uh, uh, Scenarios, not unlike, well, maybe a lesser version, if you will, or a lighter version of say what was happening in Kearney, which is more of a concentrated, uh, you know, a, a, a zone of of you know soccer and and ethnic uh, stuff. But but arguably, right in the late sixties, early seventies, right, this is indicative, I and mean, you had to look very hard around various parts of the country to sort of see these little pockets. Actually, there are probably more of them. Than we probably admitted, but they just weren't they, they weren't connected, right? They were very loosely understood, or, or they were very regional, and and there was no sort of semblance of of you know the um, uh, the the potential connectivity of that activity, right? So in some respects, it well, well, was like you're in a vacuum, right?
2: Yeah, ex- exactly, and and especially because. If, if you think about uh, the cultures, you know, the Germans read the German Stadt, right, like one paper, and then the, you know, the Greeks had their own Greek paper, and um, so it was even more cut in pieces than, for example, later on when the Hispanics came to the United States, right? So, like, even now, the club that I was with, Blau Gotchi, that mainly had German, Austrian, you know, kids from Europe, now they're Teams are full with Latinos, Ecuadorians, Argentinians. And but you know what? They all read the same newspaper. They all watch Univision or Telemundo. Right. So there was a way to connect the dots a lot easier than you're reading your German paper and I'm reading my Yugoslavian paper. Right. Um, So, yeah, to your point, it was we were in a vacuum. It was almost like, um, you know, what are those guys over there doing, you know?
0: uh how how are you picking up the game so to speak how do you sort of uh, uh, uh i guess alight to to the to the nuances of this if you will foreign sport because it's one thing to sort of be uh, corralled and, and recruited it's quite another to actually be interested in and maybe even sort of think you've got some level of talent to play with these probably more advanced uh skill set kids
2: well one of the things was uh Paulie and I were kind of the oldest kids in our neighborhood. So we kind of like, all right, we're doing basketball today, right? And um, or we're doing this. And so we started to introduce, take it from where we went and met the other families, a couple towns over in Clarkstown. We met the other families, the other Germans, Austrians, whatever Yugoslavians would bring their kids, and we'd meet twice a week for practice. Well, we'd go home. And now it became one of the activities on our list in the neighborhood, whether the other kids liked it or not. And then they started, listen, it's a game you fall in love with. You don't need to be big. You don't need to be strong. So long as your feet reach the ground, you can play. And, you know, we all started to like it and enjoy it more. And it, it became a, a priority for me, actually, for a lot of the kids in the neighborhood, um, later on down the road, many of them also from my neighborhood, very much like Kearney, almost like corny had their guys, the Scots and the, the English and those guys in their neighborhood. In, in our neighborhood, it was, you know, the, the Germans, the what have you. The unusual thing really was that I was an American. So somehow I got pulled into it not by a parent. So my mom didn't know a soccer ball from a golf ball, right? Um, and no one brought me to soccer. Soccer brought me to soccer. And most of the kids I played with, I mean, my friend, Nicky Megalutis, he tells a story of his dad. He lived in Astoria. His dad would like wake him up at 5.30 in the morning to go train because he wanted them to be a pro. And he'd go, Nicky's name was Nufrius. In Greek, and he goes, nuvres, uh, Lufris, come on, we're going to training. They're in a two-bedroom apartment with like five kids. Nikki gets kind of leans up from the bed and pulls the like shade away from the window. He looks like, he goes, Ah, it's snowing. He goes, We train under the bridge, under the tribal Bridge. You took him to train, right? <laughs> so. So I did not have that kind of influence of bringing me to the game. We were My mom didn't know anything. My family didn't know anything about soccer. So I was like a real gringo, if you will.
0: Uh, so describe then high school and then in the college and stuff, because it's clear that uh, you were not only sort of interested in the game, uh, you were picking up some skills and becoming quite good at it. Um that doesn't happen either by accident, either. There's some level of passion or interest or belief on your own, as you're just describing, right? That I can get better. I, I enjoy this. I'm really, I'm, I'm decently good at it. Um, sort of describe that process in, in college, because obviously in college is where you start to get a little bit of um, uh, acclaim, I guess, for your play and and getting onto some other people's radars outside of your hometown.
2: Sure. Well, you know, it, It became like an obsession. I guess my second, my first year playing, I literally, it was my birthday the first game. I had been playing like two and a half weeks. We had a game and uh, I was 12. And the uh, by the time the next year came around I was practicing hours every day. And the coach made me a captain. And it was it was like it it almost like transformed me my uh you know my my older brother was heading down the wrong road and i was right in the back seat with him heading that way and soccer kind of grabbed me and pulled me out of the car put me on the new road uh we were sniffing glue we were robbing cars and um uh, and soccer the guy made me a captain and it was it was, like, life-changing. Uh, his name was Soutner. and we were, the, we were the only team, youth team, north of New York City, like, over to Tappan Zee Bridge. Forget it. At that time, only in the city, in the ethnic neighborhoods. And Long Island was just starting at that time, too. And there was a movie theater up the road from my house. It was called Cinema 45. And one day, you know, I started taking my ball with me wherever I went. I mean, the coach was like, you're going to have the ball with you all the time. So the back of the movie theater didn't have any windows. So one day when I was walking up to Hillcrest, I started kicking the ball off the wall, you know. And I was like, wow, this is great. And then all of a sudden, a couple of the, the guys we met, we were playing there. And then the place had lights. So we went from playing on someone's lawn that ended when the lights went on to playing all night. So I'd go there and the coach would say, you know, want to be a player. you need to keep the ball 500 meter right and 1,000 meter left, right? So I'd literally go to the wall and rank it off the ball, wall left and right. I used to be able to throw a tennis ball off of a wall and head it back and forth hundreds of times without it hitting the, hitting the ground. Because I spent so much time by myself mainly because it wasn't easy to find a game or someone to train with. So if you wanted to be a good player, it had to be like an individual discipline where you, you, you kind of did it yourself. And then, you know, in high school, I, I actually, my first school experience was a junior high. You know, we we, we were playing in gym class and, um, you know, they had these Brown balls. There were no goals. There were no mini goals. There were, you know, they had nets that they put on the bottom of a football goal post, you know, that always had the bars above it. That was it. There were no none of these millions of goals laying all over the fields. So you'd come to gym class and they'd put two big orange cones on one end, two big orange cones on the other end, and then they'd send you off, and everybody would kick each other to pieces in gym class, right? No one was controlling the ball, no one. And I happened to have great junior high teachers in the gym class they were mentors a guy by the name of mazaris and bloom and i guess they saw me you know here i am a year after i've been playing with the club training three days a week training on my own and there's the kids just kicking the ball around and all of a sudden i'm bringing it down making turns knocking balls in with both feet so they they call me over they they go where did you learn how to do like hey what you know you don't have an accent I was like, yeah, I'm like a Widjler. I said, I play with the Spring Valley boys team. They was, what is that? It was so new, no one even knew about it except the ethnic, you know, the ethnic um community. So anyway, they said, Why aren't you on this school team? And I was like, the school has a team. I was so it was like, it was like a big revolution to me that there even was a team, which now gave me another reason to go to my classes to be on time to what. And then in, in high school, I played as a, in my high school, it was 10th, eleven, to 12th grade. So I played at Ramapo Senior High School, and I was an all-county immediately as a, a sophomore. And um, I just got more and more involved. I played the German-American League All-Stars. I mean, I couldn't get enough of it. I literally, you know, while I was writing the book, my, one of the guys helping me, uh, William Durella, who was kind of, um one of the, one of the people that i kind of bounced ideas off he goes you keep saying how many hours you trained. to how much you know you got to quantify that so we went back and i called friends and went well, i used to train an average of 40 to 60 hours a week depending if i had school or not so and most of those hours were on my own because the team you know, only trained a couple of days a week, but then you have the junior high team, I mean, the high school or school team. And then you have the. So I was kind of obsessed, you know, Um and
0: did you ever ask yourself why you became so obsessed? Was it because you thought that that was, quote unquote, a ticket out of some of the things you were being diverted uh, to earlier in your youth? Or did you think you had maybe inklings of becoming you know, making a career out of this? Or was it just more a distraction? Or was it just, you fell in love with the game and it was just something you wanted to do in all your waking hours? Well,
2: the ethnic guys all followed the World Cup before anybody in our country knew about the World Cup. You couldn't even get it on, you know. I mean, the first World Cup I no, ever kind of watched. The
0: Felt Forum in, 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 in Madison, under Madison Square Garden with, yeah, I mean, you know, you it's a closed circuit. Uh, it was, this is crazy.
2: That's where you had to go. And that, in 1970, they didn't even really have that, I don't think. Maybe they did, but I was too young. I didn't go. But in 74, I went to Madison Square Garden, exactly, to watch the entire World Cup um, on closed-circuit TV. In 1970, we had, you know, back then you had a black-and-white TV. They had the ears on top of the, the TV. And uh, we came, just came home from church, and we're watching – my uncle's trying to help us get it on his tv and it's it was before univision right before there was a a, a -A -A, s-a-e-n-a
0: right tony tony Torado and the the s-a-e-n-a exactly right
2: yeah and we're trying to get it to come in because you know we're upstate so it's not like you're in the city and it's coming in clear which is there and it's like Uh, and then everybody here, everybody cheering, I'm like, "Uh, and everybody knew this guy Pele, right? He's the only one we kind of knew, it isn't like now when everybody has the social media and the international clubs promoting the kids and wherever, so it was like everybody knew Pele, so everybody wanted to be Pele, and he inspired me, he was kind of my North Star, Um, and I really, you know, wanted to be a professional player, which was a little weird because there really wasn't a professional league at that time. It was just, just starting. The New York Generals before they were the Cosmos. And, you know, there was all of that was happening. But again, it was like outside of mainstream and certainly outside of mainstream in American family. Uh, But I wanted to be a professional player. By the time I got to high school, I kind of in my own mind didn't feel like I was trying to be the best player on my team or in the county. I felt like there was a kid in Rio de Janeiro or in Berlin that woke up in the morning and they were going to try to out train me. And I was trying to train harder and become better than them, right? Right. So, you know, at the time, I, I, I mean, I became, a, you know, a good juggler with the soccer ball. And people like, well, oh, you know, today everybody can juggle. It's no big deal. There's a million guys that can do tricks and don't even really play soccer. But back then, it was because I didn't have anyone to play with, right? That was most of the time, you know, I was on my own. So beyond hitting the ball off the wall or kicking the ball through a, a goal that didn't have any nets, you could keep the ball up, work with your left foot, your right foot, you know, hit it high, bring it low, whatever. So that's why I became so, um, so I, you know, so intense at my training. And then when it came to college, I wasn't a good student. I had a learning disability. Uh, at one point, you know, when I went into a guidance counselor, uh, he went, what do you want to be? And I went, well, I'm, I'm going to be you know, I, was, I was like saying to myself, doesn't this guy hear the announcements in the morning that I scored two goals and we beat the team and blah, 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 in the school newspaper? And I go, well, I'm going to be a professional soccer player. And the guidance counselor ripped me a new one. He was like, every kid that walks through that door is going to be a professional basketball player or, you know, Mick Jagger or whatever, right? And I went home shattered. I mean, I would I was shattered. And um, when I, my mom said, something the matter was. And I go, and I figured, hey, she's an adult. All the adults think the same way, right? She's going to say the same thing. and And my mom was actually mad. She was like, I can't believe someone would ever tell you you couldn't be something you want. You can, if you put your mind to it and you put your heart in it, Anybody can be whatever they want to be. And don't you ever let anybody tell you And had she not had she had a car and didn't have to walk to work two miles in the opposite direction. She probably would have went into school and had the the, you know, the guidance counselor's head. So she backed me. She was always there, you know, and that was important to me.
0: So, OK, that's so that, that that's pretty that's intestinal fortitude or or being forged, if you will. Right. So Describe to me what professional soccer was in your mind, because this is the early 70s, right? So, you know, uh, you're mentioning there really, we, we've talked ad nauseum about sort of the state of professional soccer in this country at that time, right? And uh, the beginning of the decade was hanging on a thread based on uh, grand aspirations from the late 60s that just, you know, basically fell completely apart and was slowly rebuilding What did you even know of this quote unquote professional soccer thing? Were you, was it all foreign lands maybe where this would be? Did you, did you fancy you could play in the United States? Did you even fancy that it could be a a way to even support yourself as a living, given what little was existing in the
2: United States at that time? You know, well, a couple of things. One, you know, I was, I didn't know I was poor. Until really, I was playing professionally. Like even in college, it didn't, I just never thought about it, right? And for example, I took my daughter back to where I lived when she was about eight, right? She's in college now, and uh, seven or eight. And I got out of the car and I parked in front of my old house on Pasquette Road. And here's this eight-year-old looking, you know, and uh, I go, that was Uncle Frank's house and the Fuchs's right there in the front. And see that little house in the back? That's where Poppy grew up. And this front lawn, that's where I learned to play soccer. And I was, like, proud. I got out of the car. You know what I mean? I'm, like, standing on someone's front lawn there, right? And my daughter looks at me and she goes, Poppy, Grandma was really poor, wasn't she? (laughs) You know? Like, so I didn't know I was poor. I didn't care how much money I made. It wasn't about the money. Um, I had, my mom had taken me to a game to watch Santos of Brazil and West Ham United uh, play in Randall's Island. So I did see a professional. Was, was, was
0: that an exhibition or was that an international soccer league game?
2: It, it was an international exhibition game. Got it. And having, you know, over the years I I have operated ran teams like that with my company like germany versus argentina or Bayern labor crew or Bayern labor cruising versus the hondura national whatever so i did that so i've been in the industry and looking back this was 1970 september right because my mom took me for my my birthday and what happened was when the promoters went and rented randall's island the city like had no idea that twenty thousand plus people would show up for somewhere for a soccer game. There were no police at the game. Like there were no like they had like three ushers. Right? They normally when you rent the stadium, they go, "What's the pop? All right, you need this many police. There's going to be that. Let's get parking. Let's do this. uh-uh." It was like ah, these soccer guys. No one's going to come. there were 20,000 plus people at this game. And uh, that was my first game that I saw. It was a 2-2 tie. I talk about it in the book. Actually, there's even a a QR code that takes you back to the game. And so I did see that. The closest thing to a local pros where I went, my youth coaches took me uh, to watch a open cup game between I think it was Elizabeth from New Jersey and the Greek Americans from, uh, you know, New York City. It was in the Metropolitan Oval, which is a very famous little, you know, iconic soccer park that still is there. It was much different then. Now it's turf and a very nice and whatever. But and literally there were. It wasn't even standing room only. It was squeeze room only, right? And um, it was packed. And the level of of play, you know, was extremely high. I mean, they were all new new ethnics. Um, Some, they even flew in from their countries that were playing in first divisions to play in these games. And it was just a great atmosphere. And it was more the adrenaline and the... The I want to participate. I want that to be me. Than it was whether I get paid and I'd live here or I'd live there. It didn't matter to me if I had to go to Oshkosh. I would have went to Oshkosh. You know, uh, I I would have any. There was nothing that I wouldn't have done to be a great player, to be the best player I could be.
0: So you actually had something to to visualize to focus your energies on that, that that you could actually be part of right i mean th- that game i think was in september of 1970 uh yeah. according to the new york times i think it was like they had like more than twenty two thousand people and if if you, if anybody remembers what the downing stadium at randall's island used to be before it sort of converted you know about uh, 15 years ago to what is now icon stadium right it was um, uh, to say it was uh 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 Uh, falling apart was it was being charitable and and obviously Cosmos stuff later on sort of called out that but um yeah I mean I gotta think it was very similar to Pele's first game in 75 when there were probably people maybe even like looking over the Triborough Bridge and and you know maybe not necessarily having paid for that game because 22,000 at Randall's Island I I don't know it, it seems like maybe more than a few people didn't actually have seats for that kind of crowd
2: well let let me let me tell you here's here's the The funny part that I talk about in the book is, you know, my mom got us there by public transportation. It was me and my younger cousin, Frankie Fuchs, and it was for my birthday, right? And so public transportation from Rockland County into the city, from the city, into buses, right, to get to Randall's Island. Meanwhile, the buses were like so overfull, you have no idea. Like, again, they didn't like to go, okay, we're having a big event. Let's add some more buses. It was like whatever. So we get out, and everybody bought the the more inexpensive seats. Randall's Island was like a horseshoe, right? So behind one goal, there were seats, but, but in the other end zone, there were none, right? And obviously, the sideline tickets were, were at, let's say at the time, I don't know what they were. But our ticket was like seven bucks, right? So the other ticket was 15 bucks or whatever, right? So no one bought that. So in the beginning of the game, everybody was in the back behind the goal. And then a few minutes before the game, two guys got up and ran across the field from behind, you know, behind the goal to the 50-yard line. They climbed over the wall and got up. The people saw no one stopped them. No one stopped them because they had no idea there were that many people going to come and they weren't going to protect. And the next thing you know, it was like my mother, me and my and my cousin, we were the only ones in the end zone. Everybody else had gotten up, ran across the field. Right. And and got into the 50 yard lines um, again, because it was before no one had. Haley had just won the World Cup. He was like the most photographed guy in the world. He's coming for an event. And the city didn't even like, they had no idea, right? Like now, forget about it. They would have like parades and escorts and whatever. Um, for example, if Messi's showing up, they'll be ready for him. They were not ready for him. All
0: right, so so the wild thing that I want you to now take us through is less than six years later, you're playing against that very same Pelé. How does that, ha- take take us on a sort of a, a fairly, Take us on that path. Like, how do you get from that birthday event and, you know, crowds not sitting where they're supposed to and, you know, in a ramshackle stadium with the greatest player in the world to playing against him in Yankee Stadium six years later?
2: You know, I when I went when I left high school to go to college, I I had a bunch of people. It wasn't as easy for them to get your grades and things. So I had like a bunch of colleges because I was, you know, uh, sending me stuff to the house. But they had no way to find out what my grades were unless I applied, right, back in the day. So I just wasn't a good student. Again, I had learning disabilities. So I this guy George Visvery from Ulster County Community College. Um, recruited me and you would have thought I was interviewing him and he wasn't interviewing me because I was like, oh yeah, what kind of formation do you play? And, uh, well, what kind of connections do you have with professional teams? Because I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to go to play somewhere until a professional team could find me, right? Or I could find them. And this guy Visvery happened to be friends, very good friends with Al Miller. And Al Miller was the head of the uh, head coach at the um, Philadelphia Adams, and they had just won the championship. And you know, and the guy George answered all my soccer questions like like that. Like he even challenged me to you know, a game of foot tennis while we were talking. I was like, you try to play me in foot tennis? Like I was a cocky kid, right? And um anyway. Playing at Ulster with him, he he had played with played soccer uh with the Hungarian the, the 54 team, which is like one of the renowned teams. He had played under that coach and he had studied um soccer, and he was one of the fellowship. Co- was he a colleague
0: of Vogelsinger, maybe?
2: Uh well, Vogelsinger, Singer um sure. uh, very sure. good friends with Gansler, Joe Macnick. He was the he was the first um flight of coaches for the United States Soccer Federation coaching license, which I talk about in there too, because I got my license when I was 18. My wow. my C license is number 318. Um so um yeah, so this guy Visvery was special. He just passed away recently, He had just read my book. I talk a lot about him and how he influenced me uh, and many others. He won the national championship many times. He put out just 20s, 30 pro players. Uh, never mind how many he put in Division One and other colleges after they went to Ulster. The guy was, you know, just amazing. One of my main mentors who helped save my life, if you will. And um, so I played there. And we got to the national championship. So my whole thing was get to the national championship. So um, we got to the national championship. And at the national championship, uh I was approached by a college coach. His name's Bill Nuttle. Uh, Bill uh has a great soccer background. He wound up being the general manager for the 94 World Cup team. Uh, so he was Bora's boss, although Bora always says he was my boss. And then Bill always says the Bora. He goes, no, no, Bora was my boss. I was not his boss. And um, anyway, Bill was coaching at FIU at the time. And he approached me and said, um, So I coach at FIU, and I saw you just playing in St. Louis here at the national championships. And Blah, blah, and he started going into, like, his school and how good it would be and how I would fit in and blah, blah. And I was, like, kind of not hearing it, but my mom always said, listen, always listen to people, hear them out, and then be honest with them. So he ended his spiel, and I went, I'll be honest with you. I'm really looking for a protein, so I'm not sure that your school is going to fit what I'm looking for. Like, as nice and as cocky as you can be, but as nice. And he goes, well, funny you say that. I play with the Miami Toros. I'm their goalkeeper, and I'm sitting here with the coach. But he's not allowed to approach you, but you can approach him. And I'm like, "Where is he?" <laughs> he's like, "He's sitting up there in the you know." So I, I, I'm not even sure if I said goodbye to Bill or not. And I was sitting next to the guy. And we went through a thing, and he said, "Okay, I really like the way you played, and I'm not allowed to approach you." And Then he asked me about your financial aid status, because if you were, had hardship, the league couldn't sign you before you were a senior, but if you were, you couldn't, you know, there were all rules as there are at every league at all different times. And um, so that's where my connection to the pros started. And then when Greg Myers brought me in early um, to work, in the front office and do the community relations and stuff. Cause I was an American kid. I spoke English. I had my coaching badge already um, and he thought it would be a good fit. And he was trying to get more Americans into the league, which was hard at that time. And, but being encouraged anyway, our- by
0: the rules though, the rules wanted more American players because they, there was, there was, there was, they were bending over backwards at that. That's beginning at that point to, to encourage more American players. Right
2: yeah they would see what happens there weren't done so then they made rules like the rule at at one point was you have to have six americans right and then but then how do you define americans so like is it a a green card holder is it a citizen is it you know so um how many real americans were in the rosters were we're few and far between a shep messing for example but many times a giorgio canalio who became an american citizen later on counted as one of the Americans in the, in the Cosmo lineup. Right. So they kind of got around it in some ways, but he was an American guy. He wanted to. And and so he, he was working on trying to give American young players chances. And anyway, our first game was in Miami the next year. This was Pele's first season, first full season in the NASL. He, uh, there, it happens to be against the Miami Toros. What are the odds, right? So here I am, a rookie, and we're, my first game is against the guy Pele, right? My first professional game. I side and I'm going to be playing against the Cosmos and Pele. So this whole no started dream, what are the odds, right? Well, I don't get in the game, but, you know, Pele was such a great ambassador human there was a room set up in between our locker room and his locker room where he literally would sign autographs to the other players before the game so our coach would walk us in one at a time i handed him my scrapbook that i had you know it was more of him in my scrapbook than me and um he signed my autograph Uh, Can you imagine a player you're about to play against in a professional game signing an autograph for you before? Anyway, I wound up not getting in the game, uh, which was probably the first game of my life that I didn't start in, never mind not play. Even I played with the youth national team. uh, I wound up playing in a position I didn't usually play because the better players... Took the creative midfield and other places that I play, but then I play wing back, so it worked out, you know. Um, but here I didn't play first time ever in my life. I was kind of shattered. It was televised back to New York. The game was in Miami. Fast forward, uh, August the 10th, 1976. One of our last games of the season, and we're playing the Cosmos in Yankee Stadium. And You know, the coach never gave the lineup until in the locker room. You know, he watched you warm up. He made sure you were, you know, there on time. You know, all the things. Then he'd give the final lineup. So he gives the final lineup, and I'm in the lineup, and I'm like, wow, like this is much. The stadium's, you know, rocking. They're hanging banners off the, the, the thing with my name on it. Probably any kid I ever played against, every high school kid my. Rockland County, the Ulster, everybody was there. And it was a you know great night. It rained a little bit before the game, but then it cleared up and it was beautiful. And uh the coach, our game plan was look, it's the end of the season, we're missing some players. The Cosmos really need this. We're gonna be a little more defensive-minded. But rather than Mark Pele, man to man, I just want everybody, whenever he gets the ball, double team him and everybody just get behind him and you know. So two minutes into the game, he scores. Two minutes in. <laughs> I looked at the sideline. The coach is waving me over. He goes, all right, we're changing that. You're marking a man to man. If he goes to the bathroom, you follow him. Right? So I didn't even have time to be nervous because I didn't start the game. You know, the pregame, all of that. I was just playing my regular midfield position. I left that. and And then there was literally 90 minutes of me. Being next to him, you know, him kicking me, me kicking him, but getting the ball, no one, you know, um, and I, I look, I never, later on in my professional career, I had coaches tell me to take people out, sick as that is. And I'm just like, I don't do that. That ain't me. You want someone help? You want to take me off? Take me off. But I'll try to get the ball from them. I'll continue. But I'm not. I'm not doing anybody. And um, and this coach wasn't like that at all. But but Pele is used to getting kicked, right? And, yeah, did I foul him? Did I pull his shirt? Did I hold his shorts? Yeah, but I wasn't trying to break his leg, right? Um, and If we knocked each other down, we picked each other up. And it was, you know, 90 minutes, uh, hence the name of the book, 90 minutes with the king. It also talks about how soccer saved my life. I wasn't so lucky and my brother didn't have soccer and um, his mentors weren't good. And uh, he, he had a much rougher road than I did, which is part of the book as well. Uh, hence how soccer saved my life. And, um, but that, those 90 minutes I remember now, like they were yesterday and at the end of the game, you know, at the end of the game, he, back in the day, like they would end the, Pele would run off a few minutes before the final whistle. If the game was like somebody was winning, it was pretty obvious. The referees would literally let him know we're going to end this and he would run off into the locker room. Right, um, so that look. I went to watch him play one time. They literally stripped him to his underwear. They took his shoes. The fans just went on the field, took his shoes, his socks. His sh- I saw a guy running away with his shin guard, like the guy had gold in his hand. Right, and the poor guy's there his underwear. You know, the police trying to trying to keep it safe. so the safest way is he used to sneak off. Like bangs, looks like he's going for a throw and he drops the ball runs off. So we're on the sideline, and he looks to me. And he says, do mm, you, you, you like my shirt? I was like, what? <laughs> he was, and he's like holding his shirt with his two hands, right, at the bottom. Uh, you like shirt? my shirt? I was like, I didn't even answer. I, my jaw just dropped. He tore his shirt off and handed it to me and bolted into the locker room, right, like under the dugout. Yankee Stadium. So I rolled the shirt up, thinking the fans are gonna come get me, beat me up, and take it, right? And I rolled it up, put it on my shirt, and a few seconds later the game was called. And um, yeah, it was uh it was quite a quite a night.
0: We won't talk about the final score though.
2: Oh no, we got hammered, but a lot of our English players were on loan, and if you weren't in the playoffs, they could bring you back early. And they needed to win the game to flinch a higher position. So, uh, oh, they were a better team anyway. But, you know, the, in the beginning of the season, it was a really close game. And had all our players been there, I'm still not sure because Giorgio wasn't there for the first game. He was there for this game. He he had a, a wonderful game. Uh, but for me, it didn't matter. I had front, seat, front row seats to uh, what I say was a, a magic show. Pele hit a bicycle kick. Uh, that also i have a qr code in the book that takes you to the kick but it was he said it was the nice nicest goal of his life which is pretty good for a guy that scored over a thousand goals and uh i was right there when it happened uh when i was marking him that was the only goal he got so i i can tell everybody that for pele to score on me has to have a bicycle kick (laughs)
0: All right, what's this? OldSchoolShirts.com. Fantastic. You've heard me talk on and on and on about the great folks and the great wares at OldSchoolShirts.com. Like the name implies, it's old school and it's shirts, and they put them together, see, into what they call OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, it's like the name implies, but of course, we love them primarily uh, for their sports You name the league of the past, you name the team of the past, the chances are huge that they're going to have more than one shirt and different color schemes for things that you may remember from the United Football League or the Major Indoor Soccer League or various flavors of the original XFLs, uh, plural, or the Federal League, perhaps, or maybe World Team Tennis, or maybe it was the North American Soccer League and on and on and on. But, hey, it's not just sports. It's also great cultural touchstones and memories from the past. How about the officially licensed Evil Knievel Connection? Connection? How about collection? Yeah, that's what he's trying to say. Uh, Various colleges. How about dead malls of the past? Ice cream parlors. Maybe even radio stations that you might remember. Hey, even there's a latest edition of the old, now old, Aloha Stadium commemorative shirt. All that kind of stuff and more you will find At least a handful of shirts that you will just transport you back into your past and you will amaze and impress your friends at the same time. It's OldSchoolShirts.com. And we got a promo code for you, of course. Let's save you some dough while you go there. And it's a promo code is Good Seats. Good Seats. That's the promo code at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code Good seats for 10% off all of your purchases. Hey, P.F. Wilson and your friends at OldSchoolShirts.com, thank you for your sponsorship of the show. And now, back to our conversation. All right, so let's gear shift a little bit. So you're, in, you're solidly in the pros at this point. So... Um, you hopscotch through a lot of different teams and stuff. So we don't have to go through like, you know, day by day in each of them, but I'm very curious about, uh, so the Toros experience, right? So that was 1976, but then the franchise moved um, uh, to Fort Lauderdale there that next season. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Moved to Fort Lauderdale, got a new coach. It was Ron Newman, uh, got a new branding. uh, And I got caught early in the season, and it was the first time. Again, uh, it was the first time, you know, I I fought my way into the lineup with the Toros to the end of the season. I, I played more than half the games. I got half, more than half the minutes. Not bad for a 19 year old kid, the youngest kid in the NASL. Um, and now a new coach comes in, and he wants all his players. So early in the season, I got released. It was the first time. I had ever been cut from anything. I mean, you name it, whatever. So it was pretty, it was pretty hard to swallow, right? And, you know, you start questioning yourself. Well, can I, you know, am I good enough? Can I do this? And it would have been easy to pack it in. A lot of people do pack it in when they get cut or when they get traded or when they're, you know, when things are, are the darkest, if you will. And um took me about two weeks uh, of feeling sorry for myself, and I realized that he can take the team away from me, but he can't take my talent away. Can't take all of the hours I spent getting here. He can't take my enthusiasm and he can't take my spirit. He can cut me and he's welcome to do that. Ron Newman and I were friends when it was, you know, I mean, after, you know, it took me a minute to swallow the pill, but over the years we were at events together and did things and I never held it against him. He had to pick the team he did. it. It was a business, Right. Uh, at that time, as a 20-year-old kid, it would I had gone to Europe and trained in Austria in the offseason, and I felt I was even better than I was a year before, but hey, certain coaches are looking for certain kind of players doesn't mean that you're not good enough, whatever, and I just got my bag and I went around and I... Uh, Wound up playing with the Cleveland Cobras in the American Soccer League, right? Because right, before- it was already most of the NASL players already had their teams, so it was tough to get into a roster early in the season, right? And the ASL started a few weeks after us, so I wound up signing with the Cleveland Cobras.
0: All right before we get to Cleveland for a second, I do want you did though have a so the the Strikers. If I have this correct, right, when the Robbies essentially moved the team. Um before they actually debuted outdoors in 77 they actually played indoors. Um right. you played, you but, played you were still part of the team then do you Yeah do you yeah remember? no I
2: played with them I I was part of the team even the first couple weeks of the season but I wasn't on the active roster but they still owned my pass right and they weren't and then when some more of the English players came in and the roster was full and they 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 needed to get the money from somewhere to bring in the bigger names so they they I I got released.
0: So all right, exp, uh, explain to me though. This might be more of a of a, of a distant haze, but um, I, I'm curious about this little divot in in soccer history. The the strikers played in this place called the Sportatorium. Do you remember that?
2: Yes, yeah, I can. we played indoor there, and then we went to Tampa to play. And so it was, uh... you
0: describe that because this wasn't even a league at that point. This was still like a little NASL indoor kind of tournament stuff. But the Sportatorium renowned and or reviled for its, uh, shall we say, uh, basic structure, uh, which seemed to be somewhat decent for music. But I cannot imagine that place uh, being even
2: uh,
0: at a level to to house a professional soccer indoor play.
2: I mean, I went on, I I mean, that was my first, like, indoor. But I wound up later on playing many years indoor soccer I I wish that was the worst place we ever played but we played in the Cow Palace in San Francisco one year against the San Francisco uh team and uh and you literally could smell the horse, horse poo cuz it was like a uh, you know an arena where they did the horse shows and rodeos um so yeah the the the, the it was in Hollywood Florida kind of in between Fort Lauderdale, Miami, and it was the only place and we didn't draw anything, but in all honesty, the, the, the club, it was, it was more of a preseason get ready than it. And let's, what is this indoor soccer stuff? Uh, Because there was a lot of talk about indoor soccer coming and the NASL was trying to, you know, uh, dip and dab in it to see if that's the direction they would also go. So they could keep the players year round indoor and outdoor.
0: Yeah, sure, and and obviously we know sort of the 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 what germinated f- from that. I, it's just curious to me that, uh, the, uh, yeah, and and the Sportatorium just is notorious for all kinds of other stuff. But I it to me it's it's intriguing because it was the only time that that facility and that facility was rumored to be a place for a World Hockey Association team and and all that kind of stuff. The only pro game that ever played there was was the Strikers that quote unquote indoor season. All right, so let me tell you about the ASL then. All right, so getting to Cleveland, and then you played the next year um, with the uh, with the New York Eagles. So describe to me the difference between the NASL and the ASL. Um, and I think people need to also remember, too, that uh, the boom times or the beginning of the ascent of the NASL to sort of like, you know, major league kind of status uh, was certainly on its way. And the ASL, right, uh, what would today be known as Division II, I guess, um, had uh, been around forever in many different incarnations, but was now also trying to, uh, I guess, ride on that wave of uh, pro soccer in this country. And, you know, um, but it's different, right? It didn't have the national television stuff. Well, actually the NSL didn't either, but so describe the difference and or um, the style of play and the quality of play in Cleveland and, and upstate New York.
2: You know, it, what, what it was, was it really, you know, and, and in a way, it's a little bit like this in youth soccer today. There was no pyramid. You know, listen, in the Bundesliga, the Bundesliga is the first division, the Zweite Bundes, the, you know what I mean? I mean, it, they have a pyramid. No one questions a pyramid. No one, like, can open up, Uh, uh, uh you know, today. Don't be surprised if in the next few years, The USL comes out and says, we have a division one team. MLS and us are equal, right? Like, we have a division one league. Um, And again, with lawsuits and legal things and all this, it's different in another country. In Brazil, there's a first division, a second division, so on, right? Everywhere else in the world, except here. And at that time, you know, the Cleveland Cobras, I'm in Cleveland and my ownership, nice guys, you know, just a bunch of local ethnic guys that chipped in. I had a Hungarian um uh, general manager, Dr. John, my uh coach was an Austrian guy, Herbie Howler. And uh the ownership are like comparing themselves to the cosmos, right? And I'm like, uh, I don't <laughs> I don't see that. This. this ain't the same, you know what I mean? But um there were some rosters in the ASL that were better and had more player, better players than some of the NASL rosters. So it really, it really varied from market to market and ownership to ownership. There wasn't a strict guidelines that there are obviously with MLS, but even, even later on in NASL, NASL just started to pull away and um, the business model, uh, blew up on them. The NASL, you know, they they outspent themselves as opposed to working together to figure it out. And I, that's why I think the NASL failed. The business model was wrong. Um, but the ASL was mostly in smaller markets, but not always. There was always an ASL team in New York. The New York Apollo played in the uh, Hofstra Stadium there. Uh, which is where the Cosmos played just a year or two before. So for a regular soccer fan, it was confusing. You know the ASL, the NASL, a pro team. You know, and and so the two leagues were existing. I'm not sure they were. In some ways, they weren't even really competing with each other if they weren't in the same market because the NASL didn't pay much attention to the ASL. Um, but for the most part. The biggest difference were were the budgets. You know, the NASL rosters had more money. The front offices spent more money. um, They had a marketing plan. A lot of the ASLs, I mean, I can tell you a bunch of, you know, funny stories that, you you know, just show how unprofessional things were. But also, there were many NASL teams that bounced checks, didn't pay stadiums, had problems as well before they left. So it was like the growing pains of professional soccer.
0: But you were also getting games in, right? And that's not a bad thing for a soccer player, especially if you couldn't, you know, find it. You, you couldn't hook up with an NASL roster. So, uh, it, uh, how was the quality of play? Uh, clearly, there's some great names that played in those years in the ASL, and there was certainly some bouncing around too between between leagues uh, at that time, and and. And coaches too. I know uh, Eddie Fermani, for example, went over to the New Jersey Americans for a spell, and that was that was a, a you know a, a news item for a day or two in the New York Metro area because he was a former Cosmos coach. And so you know there was a little overlap in terms of. I'm sure there was a lot of overlap in terms of play and players and that kind of stuff. Uh, were you happy in those uh, those two years, or were you always trying to get to the NAS back to the NASL, or maybe Look, I? Look, can... you know,
2: I, yeah, I, I I used I used to have players that would say. I'm a, I'm a professional player. I'm not playing indoor. And I'm like, listen, bro, if you ain't getting paid, you ain't professional. Right. So you can sit around and wait for a next game, or you can go get play any game somebody – see, I didn't care. It didn't matter to me, right? Like, I wanted to play. And equally, I wanted to promote the game because I. it really – you know, and I, I got the bug working in the Toro front office because I used to go in with the coach a lot and see the marketing lady. And I did so many clinics. I went and did everybody's clinics. And Guys would come to me and go, hey, Tom, I got a clinic. I don't want to go. You want to go? I go, yeah, I'll go, I'll go. I was so happy to sign an autograph like when I was 19, you know? So it, how are you going to build the sport if you're not out there playing, coaching, promoting, Right and so i always just wanted to play so whether i was playing in i of course would i rather play in the nasl than the asl surely but in some cases there were players in the asl that were making more money than they would have got in the nasl right because again there was no like maximum player budget or whatever. If the owner wanted the guy and he thought he was uh, the best goalkeeper and he bought him and the goalkeeper was going to make $8,000 a month instead of $4,000 a month back then, they went and took it, right? It was like whatever the best deal was. So, you know, listen, Eusebio played in the ASL. There were many great players um, that that played in the ASL, in the, in the lower division. So, um, to me, I love being on a team. I love promoting my sport. Um, Look, I wanted to be the best player in the world when I was growing up, right? And that was my goal. My goal is to be a professional player and be the best player in the world. Well, you know what? I never became the best player in the world. But I can look back and go, hey, I trained as hard as I could. I tried as hard as I could. I did my best. So I can look myself in the mirror and go, hey, you did what you can do. You move on. You you hope the sport gets better. The players make more money. There's more opportunity for everybody. And, and look where we are. I mean, back then, who would have imagined that a professional team in last place would have more social media followers than in the most NFL, right? Like, there's like it, that. It was never even like they'll never compete at any level about anything with any of the other professional sports. And soccer, right now, <laughs> let me tell you, we're right up there. We are no longer in the back of the bus. We're driving the bus. And that's from participation, that's from revenue, that's from marketing, that's from sponsorship internationally. Forget about it. So, You know, the MLS has done a great job. This Apple TV thing changes things. Um, And back in the day, there were two leagues. Now there are a bunch of leagues, too. So um, I'm I'm just I'm happy that I played for so long. I played with so many different teams. I met so many great humans. I played it with and against great guys. And uh, I'm a lucky, lucky soccer human. I've been blessed by the soccer gods.
0: Um, all right, I want to get your final thoughts on on the 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 state of pro and all that kind of stuff. But uh, before we before we wrap up your playing career, though, I just want to ask, uh, and I think you're kind of hinting at it. So you're talking about money, right? You're talking about the ASL, but also my suspicion is that uh, you were part of a uh, a breed of player that was um, taking advantage of playing the be, being able to play outdoors and indoors as this major indoor soccer league thing got really started, right? So um, it, it's, it looks to me like you were playing ASL outdoors and uh, literally becoming kind of uh, quite quite the phenom uh, in the MISL. And I, there's some very famous pictures of you, one in particular, doing the some of those said clinics with the uh, ill-fated Hartford Hellions. So do I have that right? You were kind of, if you will, uh, getting two paychecks to play year-round
2: that way? I, 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 like I said, I, I cause I'd have a guy go, That's not soccer. I go, you ain't getting paid for three months. When are you going to go collect, so you go collect unemployment. I go, I am going to play. Right. So I played indoors, outdoors, indoor, outdoors. And to top it off, I always, when I negotiated my contract, I always worked in the front office. So not only did I play on all of those teams, they paid me an extra salary to run the clinics and help with the marketing and sales department in the front office of the teams so you so you're all in oh I was getting the player so I because who better would know because the last thing a player wants some like intern comes in and drops an envelope in your you know at your at your uh at your locker and set and then they open it up, they go, I got an appearance this weekend, my wife got a wedding, blah 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 you know there So I handled all that. Right? So I knew a guy like Shep Messing, we sent him to the TV. We sent him to the big political things. These other guys, we could send out to, you know, one of the oldest kids' birthday parties or to a, a youth, you know, an elementary school assembly. Uh, or I take the guys that can't speak and bring them to their community so we could connect the Polish community with the Polish players or the Latin community with the Latin players. So I did that from inside. It got to the point where – When they went to go write a marketing or sponsorship, I sat with them and helped put the inventory together, what they could sell from the front office. So, and those skills of working in the front office and play. So literally we, let's say we had training at nine o'clock in the morning, right? Uh, Let's say 10 o'clock, but you had to be in the locker room by nine getting ready. So I'd go in, go to the locker room, train. I eat lunch and then I'd go in the office till five, six, seven o'clock at night. If I left to go to clinics or whatever, or drive players somewhere, plan all of the marketing things for the, for the club, make sure it didn't conflict with the coach's schedule. And then, and then I'd go to the indoor team and I'd be doing the same thing with them. So I wound up connecting with the, with the soccer communities so that we could connect the team the ticket sales, the marketing, every, everything together, which was kind of a unique thing. Sometimes, um, you know, sometimes some of the players like didn't understand, right? Like how I could be out doing all those clinics and still show up for training. And well, I just really felt that it was part of our duty to sell the sport to the country, right? To, the, to our people. I wanted it. I wanted soccer to be an American sport.
0: What uh, Can you explain the difference between the indoor game and the, and the outdoor game playing? So the adjustment, uh, and frankly, the leagues, ASL versus MISL, it seemed like at the time, as you were bouncing back and forth, you know, MISL was, uh, shall we say, a hell of a lot more ascendant, perhaps, than the ASL was outdoors. So mental adjustment, physical adjustment, and frankly, at some point, you have no time to, rest during the season
2: yeah yeah no there was no rest but but um the the diff the biggest look and and the leagues change it was asl at one point it was a usl right the united soccer league that i played with the fort lauderdale Sun, right and the asl had kind of fallen away the nasl was not there for a minute and I went and played with the Fort Lauderdale Sun outdoor. And then I played indoors. I played with the heart. Uh, I played with, first with the Pittsburgh spirit then the Hart- Hartford Hellions. And really to me, listen, I grew up playing on the cement in front of C- cinema, 45, the movie theater. So like it my all the guys complaining about shin splints or playing on the turf in indoors. It never, it never even bothered me the slightest bit. Right. Um, I just wanted to play. And the biggest difference between indoor and outdoor was that indoor, you really needed to have a lot more technical skill. Like there were a lot of players outdoors that couldn't also play indoor just because of their style of play that they took too long with the ball. Maybe one of the reasons they, they were even in a roster is because they were such a good header that they, you know, they, it made a big difference to the coach and his lineup. And that just wasn't relevant indoors at all. A lot of players that were very successful indoors, some of the top, top scorers, didn't have the same, or in some cases they had zero success outdoors, but they did great indoors. With the exception of Jungle, Steve Jungle, who was the best indoor scorer ever in the history, like Lord of all indoors, he was, an, he was a good player outdoors, but not nearly the category of, you know, uh, player that he was indoors. Indoors, he was just completely another level, right? And everybody knew that. I don't think anybody ever even questioned that. And outdoors, he was a good player, but but he wasn't the man. So it, you know, it, it was a different set of skills to be the player. Um, and And actually, mine were okay for both. I was pretty disciplined. I was always in shape. Listen, knock on wood, I never got injured badly. And I think part of that was because I was always in shape. Because I went from indoor to outdoor, outdoor back to indoor. You know, sometimes it was a week or two in between, but I went trained anyway. So um, the mentality of indoor soccer is a little different. Because of the shift, you know, you're on for three minutes and you're off, and you run on, and you got to shift with the guy, and it's it's a lot more. The tactics are like hockey, um, more than the outdoor game where you got to sustain yourself for ninety minutes.
0: And 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 the the, the leagues though, though very different though. ASL and MISL, I mean, I, w- I would imagine some of your front office exposure was a little bit more, shall we say, highly valued uh, in the MISL, which. In many respects, was aiming to be big time, right? Earl Foreman and, and Ed Tepper, and and you know this was like major arena stuff, right? I mean they were and and television and the St. Louis Steamers and all that kind of stuff, right? That was and the Arrows, and it was a big deal for a number of years. I got to think you were exposed, and I'm guessing in the front office uh, or lending a hand there too.
2: Well, how about this? When I when I moved with the New York hourings, uh the Kansas City Comets uh were owned um by the same guy he wound up buying the new york franchise because the league right? fell like wiki brothers well well they didn't own it but they the same owner brought them and brought so so my front office had the Lewicky brothers so i worked i answered directly to todd lewicki and tim lewicky and talk about a sports marketing class degree college um, experience, these guys, I mean, think about it. I mean, the Lewicki family probably are the most successful launching of professional sports in our country at any level with any kind of, whether it's hockey, basketball, building arenas, um, you know, L.A., you know, And I'm sitting in the front office having coffee with Todd every morning. And my job was connecting the community relations and the marketing together with the ticket sales department and his brother who was doing our TV. So I got behind the scenes experience of doing those things which later on when I was the president of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers, which, by the way, was the team I got cut from 40 years earlier. Right. Then I wound up being the president of the, the club. But those were the kind of experiences. So, look, you're a player. You're making whatever you're making. You train from 10 to 11, 30, 12. You go out to eat with your boys. Now you're home the rest of the day. Not me. I was in the office. Right. Learning, learning the trade, learning the marketing, learning the front office stuff. So for me, it was just again, it was like soccer was like a, a fix of heroin for me. Like I I just loved doing whatever it was I could any part of the game. And having the Lewicki brothers was it, it didn't get better than that.
0: All right. So you're mentioning a whole bunch of white whales that we're looking for. I'm looking for any like Wiki brother at some point. Uh, and it could be Terry talking about the broadcast and stuff or, or whatever. And jungle of course, uh, you know, is also a, a, a uh, a white whale for us too, for for his many memories. All right, let's let me let's segue then and 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 cul de sac then, uh, because you know you have your life to go back to today. It's the last thing you want to do is spend like seven more hours talking to me. But I'm sorry
2: about that. Yeah, I do go on too much. No, I'm this, no,
0: I'm try, I I, I would. I'm I'm worried about you running out of steam. So um, it it's clear that uh, that exposure to these front office experiences, being out in the community, the grassroots level. I mean you you have a much more um holistic understanding of what is needed for this quote-unquote professional soccer thing and and I'm sure once your playing career ended uh in the in the mid to late 1980s uh you, you also had to be a little befuddled by sort of what all this accumulated knowledge in, in the midst of essentially what had pro- collapsed professionally right i mean th- there was some successor, smaller leagues, and that kind of stuff. But as we've talked about many times with many guests, the late 80s, early 90s, right, was a very dark period for for people who had grown up, played, were fans of the professional game. And they kind of almost wondered if they'd been essentially abandoned and if it was ever going to come back again. Um, How do you pick up from that? How do you then take those skills? And then what are the things that you did over the years subsequently because you've done quite a bit in professional soccer management stuff. It's clear that those skills came in handy.
2: Well, first of all, I'll never forget the day it was in the USA Today newspaper. Remember the USA Today paper when it was always? The, it's still like,
0: around, but, the, you know, sure. But back in the day, okay. it was quite a thing, right? In the early and 80s, we'll, it was like the go-to sports page, right?
2: Yeah. And and it was kind of national. So it wasn't just what was going on in Pittsburgh or wherever. And I was playing with the Louisville Thunder. Never forget this.
0: The American and Indoor Soccer Association.
2: Yes. We won the championship, actually. And, and um, one of the players on the back page of uh, USA Today, there was an article that said Cosmos folded. Soccer was finished. And, you know, usually you do a little round, though, you know, 5v2, whatever. We're doing this. And the guy says that. We all stop and run over to the guy because he was injured. So that was he was on the side, right? And this was a pre-warm-up. The coach hadn't come out of his locker room yet. So we all run over to the newspaper. It's like, oh, my God. Oh. And I, I, like, that day, like, for the rest of the week, I you know, the next two, three days, I couldn't even kick a ball. And I was at the end of my career, so... And again, I don't have a a college degree and I don't um, have another trade. I only know soccer, but I know it inside out. I don't just know playing. I know I have my coaching licenses. I've got front office experience. I got marketing. Anyway, so I was shattered. Here I am in Louisville, Kentucky. And the New York Cosmos folded. I'm like... Pressed. You know, that weekend we had a clinic set in Olam County, Kentucky. Yeehaw! Right? And I get out of the car I have another player with me. We're gonna supposed to do an appearance, you know, hand out flyers, talk to people, kiss babies, whatever, right? They have a youth soccer thing going. And and get out, park at the top of the hill. It's like at a school. And as we walk over like the first hill to where the, there was like a level of fields below at the bottom of the hill. As we came over the hill. And I had just been saying to myself the last two or three days. Soccer's dead. It's over. And as we came over the hill. I like got. Like I'm getting now, emotional, and I'm looking out, and there's all these little kids running. The moms got their chairs on the side. This is in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. There had to be 1,500 people there. They were on the sidelines, and you know what? They could didn't even know who the New York Cosmos were. Soccer lives on right what was planted is there and those trees those kids the game is growing and it will grow right and it went on and i and i like i got excited i realized that it wasn't over that there was much more ahead and and that those experiences that complete negative And then looking at the kids and you know what I mean? And, and it just, it was like a breath of fresh air. And I knew that was it we were going to be. And so that we are here where we are today and you know, what's going on is I'm not surprised at all.
0: You have to be surprised though at, I mean, you mentioned the the, uh, the, the reincarnation of the NASL and the Fort Lauderdale strikers and stuff. Right. I, um, but you know, the, the, the advent of, of, World Cup 94 and the debut of, of Major League Soccer in 1996, I mean, you know, and even those fits and starts in the early aughts, right? Um success was still, you know, even after all of those, not guaranteed. I mean, you must have to be gobsmacked, though, by what we what you see today. I mean, we're recording this the day after uh MLS Cup and you know, a, a jam-packed uh, lower.com stadium in Columbus, Ohio, of all places, and you know, another championship for the for the crew and um, you know, it's still growing, so to speak, but soccer specific stadiums and, you know, a, a billion dollar, you know, streaming deal with 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 one of the biggest uh, tech companies on the planet. And, you know, uh, the, the and the, the sheer uh, availability of the sport on television, every form of media um, in this country. I mean, I it I, I you'd have to be Locked up, I guess, back in the late 80s, early 90s, to think that that would even be a thing 30 years later.
2: You know, I mean, w- when I stopped playing, right, in around 86, I was still hesitate whether i are going to play or not play. I played in this game with Nate, it could be, it's like a world all star game. He brought me down there. Not that I'm a world all star, but I was an American guy to play with Nate. He wanted to show the people Americans could play. But I started this company and it, it, I said to myself, you know, I used to go in and meet with a, a marketing company with the front office of a team. And for example, we'd go to Procter and gamble or we'd go to Coca-Cola or whatever, and you sit down and you, you'd make a presentation. And I said, well, the only thing I don't have is the pro team, but I can provide clinics. I can hire professional players to come as, you know, as guest people for their brands, so I started a company that was pretty much did everything. The pro teams did, except didn't have a pro team. Right. And it was called soccer marketing and promotions. And then I realized that there was a big opportunity in the Hispanic market. Since I was in Miami, it was obvious. Near in Miami, you can't even get lunch without speaking Spanish. And, um, So I started a company that was bilingual. It was called Seabla Football. We speak football, right? So, um, and we started doing grassroots soccer events at every, I mean, like at every level. And then I was hired by the 94 World Cup people to be a spokesperson. I went around to all the cities and um, we did tournaments, we did everything. So I knew that the potential Was there. And again, we started off the beginning of this um, meeting podcast talking about how there were little ethnic groups that, you know, the Greeks and Queens and, you know, the Scots down in Carnegie and that how did they get together? Well, now with social media and with Apple TV and with now there's a way to connect those dots, right? So it's just getting bigger and bigger, and it's off the charts now. And um, so that's the good news. The bad news is some people are just in it for the money. Where back in the day, if you were in it, you were in it because you loved it. You were in it because you had a passion for it. You were in it because it was in your blood. Today, there are a lot of people that are in it just because they want to make a buck, right? And it's okay, making a buck's fine. I mean, pay to play soccer for the kids, it's a must, right? But you always got to take two things in consideration that unfortunately not everybody does. One of them is, is this good for the game? And is this good for the people in the game? And those two questions aren't always asked. A lot of people just care, is it good for me? <laughs> How much money am I getting? And, uh, you know, because it it came from a mom-pop shop to today, it's a multi-billion dollar happening, right? So I, I just ask people that are in positions to just keep in mind what is good for the soccer people and what is good for the sport itself. And I think the long run, the health of the sport will be much better.
0: All right. Let me wrap up with with sort of some more pointed question uh, point, uh, around that, and then I'll let you promote, of course. And then we'll, we'll promote the book, of course, uh, before, during, sure. and after all this stuff.
2: So no um, problem. Thank you like, so much. Yeah, no, yeah.
0: please. Oh my god, uh, uh, this has uh, been absolutely cool. Um, so you may be uniquely qualified to maybe have an opinion about this, right? So there are a couple of sort of things that are evolving. You mentioned the billion dollars and all that kind of stuff, and 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 the valuations, and and pr- that's just pro sports, which I would argue is maybe. I don't know, maybe nearing a bubble of some sort because it just seems to keep going up, 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 up. And soccer is along for that ride. But um, specifically, there are a couple of interesting dynamics that uh, uh, could change things, right? Or uh, upset the apple cart, shall we say, right? So th- nobody questions MLS and its growth and, and the soccer specificity and 30 teams. Is 30 teams too much? Good question. Um, the USL, you mentioned them before, right? Um not necessarily uh, embraced or uh, well-coordinated or even in conversation seemingly anymore with MLS, as MLS now is creating its own Division Two kind of thing with MLS Next and that kind of stuff. Yet you've got some great markets and some great teams in this USL pyramid. Um, but then also, too, you mentioned the, the second incarnation of the North American Soccer League. I think a lot of people forget the fact that there is still this court case winding its way through the system uh, of the of the second NASL uh, uh, challenging the uh, the MLS for uh, restraint of trade. Um, uh, clearly, the NASL doesn't exist anymore in its second go around, but uh, it's still a very lively court case that could. I, I guess the there's the question in there is how do you see all these things. Ending, so to speak. Like, do you, I mean, it doesn't, I don't know how much further the balloon can get inflated. And then also these other issues that sort of, you know, maybe uh, being um, the greed, maybe taking over for the structure and the betterment of the game here in the States.
2: Well, let me, let me go back just quick to the, when I was talking about the power and the money, I wasn't really referring to the pro game. I was referring to the amateur, like the youth soccer, the pay to play
0: more, yeah, sure. right?
2: Yes. See, see where the pro it's different. Hey, you're, listen, you, you invest whatever half a billion dollars in a stadium and you're putting money into the community. You're hiring people. That's a different issue than if you're a local youth club and you're trying to tell a 13 year old girl, she needs to fly from Miami to Atlanta for a game. Meanwhile, she flew over 100 teams that she could have played against, right? You know what I mean? But you're doing that for the wrong reason. So that's really what I meant. The pro part of it, I personally, absolutely in this country, do not believe, and I can debate with whoever about ever in relegation. And and to me, that never would have worked here. We would have never been where we are with it. And it's a... It's a. I find it to be a ridiculous, even conversation. People say to me, "Why?" So a couple of years back, we're uh, at the coaches' convention. Guy, what are you talking about? What do you mean? I go, "All right, who came in last place in MLS this year?" Oh uh, well, who was it? Uh, it was it was DC, and DC was in a position right at that point. And again, I don't have their books or know their numbers, but just give me an idea. They were trying to get out of the old stadium. They were about to build a new stadium. They um, weren't spending a lot of money on players because you weren't going to sell season tickets to this stadium because you're really looking ahead to the stadium in front of that, right? The new one coming in and rebranding and all, right? And all the business things you should do when you're in this situation. So D.C. was in last place, right? Now, who won I said to the guys who were arguing with me at the coaches' convention, it was like ten guys arguing with me. It has to be Bellegarde. The they don't everywhere else, right? I go, all right. Who won? Who won the USL? Um, um, the uh, the Cosmo, no, the Cosmo, no. Uh, the- First of all, they couldn't tell me who. Right, it was the team from San Francisco that won the Division Two that year, the USL. Or whatever it was that year it was the NASL slash or whatever it was because it was still being mixed up, and they had been in business for eight months. They didn't draw. They didn't have a stadium. They didn't. But day one, they went out of business. They were already out of business. This was just a few months later. They already had quit. They went. They packed it in. The owners left. So that team, so all of the years that D.C. United meant investing in soccer, being part of the league, winning the championship, bringing in players, developing players, developing coaches, their academy, blah, blah, blah. They go down and up comes these guys who got in last year for a million dollars and folded in their first year. Please, right? People... It's not, it just doesn't, and listen, I have too many crazy owners. I've seen all different levels. The MLS, it's like the billionaires that people that had NFL franchises that I'm sure if they could go back to the early days of NESL, they would run it the way they're running the MLS franchises now, because they a lot that they took, that they learned from running those franchises, they brought that to, to the MLS. So to me, we also don't live in a country; we live in a continent. Remember, Germany does that, and they're the size of Texas. For us, to have you know to have the same system as big and as wide as we are, it it just it doesn't it doesn't really. I I don't believe in that. And again, everybody has their own opinion. I guess there's no right or wrong way until they see if it ever works. But I, you know, and I used to argue, you know, I worked at Traffic Sports, which was, um, they bought my company uh, at the end that I worked there with. But I used to argue with those guys all the time about that.
0: Yeah, look, I I think some would also argue too that, you know, MLS is still a uh, centralized uh, owner-operator structure, right? Uh, It's not sort of free uh franchise kinds of things arguably some some owners may want to you know chafe and try to go on their on their own and do it better than say the league but you know arguably that that artificial structure right that centralized ownership right that's what saved the league right with with Anschutz basically buying a whole bunch of franchises when it was looking not so great and then they sold them off if you will but um but yeah i mean you you wonder if you were moved some of that artificiality, that centralized, I mean, either that's the future, right, Uh, centralized ownership of league. But then, you know, on the playing perspective, it may actually be a bit more restrained in terms of like how active you can be in the open markets and that kind of stuff. So uh, there's some interesting ways it could go. There's no question, though, that this structure over the last 25 plus years has kept the league uh, growing and, uh, and the valuations of of all the participants have grown too. I you just wonder though what the next level of that looks like. I mean, thirty teams—that's a lot. I mean, even Major League Baseball doesn't have thirty teams, or, or sorry, um, uh, NHL or some of these. I I don't know. I, it, um, it it does feel a little frothy though at this moment. I, I to see these valuations. Um, I I just you know I, I it, it's hard to it's hard to fathom where much more money is going to come from and or of private equity entities who are becoming more involved in these kinds of things won't, um, I don't know, I affordability of tickets. Uh, I, I, you know, I went to a couple of Nashville games this year um, uh, for the league's cup and I was looking at a Jersey and in the stadium was $129. I mean, you know, I don't know. It just feels like it's getting a little out of reach. I think for the average fan, I just worry. That's all. I, and I'm, I, you know what, maybe I, and maybe you too, have the right to worry because we've been through some of the dark times where we saw, you know, an ascended NASL basically pop and go, go, go nowhere. Right. Um, Nobody wants to see that again. Uh, At least if, you know, uh, for people who are so passionate about the game as, as you are and, and, and and I am, um, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's needless worry, but I don't know. It just, it doesn't feel like it's sustainable uh, for too much longer as the money keeps inflating.
2: Well, I think one of the biggest you know, after the 94 World Cup, there was a big, the Federation put together a big how-wow, you know, uh, a research, a talk, discussion, brought a lot of people in before they started the pro league. And one of the things that everybody agreed on or that the experts came to the conclusion of was that you can't really do it unless you have a specific soccer stadium. So he who has land is king ultimately is is what the, what was turned out. And you know, if you come in, you buy a franchise, for example, you and right now in USL you buy a franchise and whatever you pay, whatever they say you're paying now 5 million, whatever whatever it is And you get into it and you try to do it like they did in San Francisco and it doesn't work. And two years in, three years, now you're 25 in the hole. And now you're like, your wife looks at you and you're like, look, you're 25 million in the hole. I don't see it being any different next year. You're going to be 35 million in the hole. Um, And uh, you just go, I'm out. Take the franchise. Sell it to someone for what can I sell it for? If, if, If a brand new one's going for five, I'll sell you mine for four. Whatever, right, million, whatever. Whatever it is, you're out. But when you own a three or five hundred million dollar stadium and you're already into the community and now you're doing other, you ain't going anywhere. It, it ain't it ain't so easy to throw your hands down and walk home crying, right? So in a way they're committed. They're all in. Could the business model change? Yeah, but I don't think it can ever go away again.
0: Well, coming from you, I hope that's right. And it seems like that's a credible way to land uh, this conversation. Uh, you know, uh, the good news is that the sport is probably, you know, larger than it's ever been before on all levels. So you'd like to think that the, at least the root structure is is much more solid should even on the top level or the the mid-level or as the pro game kind of sort of sorts itself out, but um, there's there's probably more infrastructure, shall we say, across the entire landscape than there ever was before. And, and even if there was a shakeup or some kind of diversion from the, the levels of the pro game, uh, you'd like to think that there's uh, and through, frankly, through pioneering efforts by people like you, um, you know, that, that those seeds have grown into some, you know, some some very strong redwoods
2: look here's a, here's an example 94 right 94 is coming 93. and again I was a spokesperson so I was all on top of the World Cup here I, by the way I've been to nine World Cup Finals in the stadium myself so I'm a um the right before World Cup's coming here in 94 right um there's an article here in The Herald are these people crazy are they out of their mind? They're trying to sell tickets in a strip. In other words, if you were going to buy tickets in Orlando, you couldn't just buy the Holland Mexican game. You had to buy all three games that were going on in, in, in uh Orlando, right? That's how U.S. Soccer and the World Cup 94 committee decided how they were going to bundle their tickets. You, you would have thought, I mean, they were like, are they out of their minds? This is a Miami Herald, they're educated. And um, are they out of their minds? They, where do they think they are? They're going to be playing in empty stadiums. They're going to wish they had 24 hours after the initial sale. They sold more tickets than anyone ever did to any event ever to this day. Period. Right? We had no, I was, I did, I worked for Coca-Cola. I did co- stuff for McDonald's. I went all over the place during world cup. I, I didn't even come home. I was just out and in Coca-Cola, I was in the Coca-Cola headquarters in Atlanta on a stage in front of their national sales heads from all over the country, all over the area, right? Like even the zones, Caribbean, whatever. And I was like trying to explain to them how important their tickets, because they had a, bundle of tickets and how important the World Cup was going to be to their customers because no one believed it like they didn't know the supermarket in Wyoming was like what are you talking about like the you know the guy in suburban in Long Island was like what are you talking about you know and all of a sudden it came and we weren't even ready for it and it hit us it was um now 2026 oh everybody's ready. Everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to be aware. People are already trying to figure out how to get tickets. I'm on the committee here in the, uh, Miami for our venue. And and it is going to be off the charts, a shot in the arm for everybody. And can there be a USL and an MLS? Sure, there's going to be. Should a little town in Wyoming or Birmingham, Alabama or something be able to host uh, a minor league uh, professional soccer team for sure and women's the women's game is going great as well. So I mean I just see it going up. I would like the people at the youth level to be a, m- a little more realistic um, about what it takes but but I just I just see it a, a really bright future.
0: All right. I loved having that chat with uh, with Tom, and I hope you enjoyed it uh, as well. Uh, the book uh, is a, a fun uh, and must-read. Uh, if you're any kind of uh, soccer fan or even curious about what soccer was like uh, back in the day as well as uh, what it has become, uh, you will enjoy the narrative and the memoirs of Tom Mulroy, our guest this week. It is called 90 Minutes with the King, How Soccer... Saved my life. And again, it has that iconic picture on the front of him defending the Great Pelé uh, from that game on August 10th of 1976 uh, as a member of the uh, Miami Toros against the vaunted New York Cosmos in Yankee Stadium in the Great Pelé, the game where Pelé had that memorable bicycle kick. Uh, you can find that on YouTube. This book is uh, a great uh, uh, narrative and a wonderful and uh, Some wistful memories, for sure. Uh, And you can get it wherever fine books are found. Perhaps you want to walk down the street to your local bookseller and get it or order it that way. But, of course, the most convenient way and maybe the way you can help uh, tip your hat uh, in our general direction with some admiration and a couple of shekels of love, we'd appreciate that. By going to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 333 and you will find a convenient link or two or three or seven to this book. You can get it uh, from our friends at Amazon in hardcover and or Kindle versions. And um, while you're online or on the website, check out all of our other episodes. Tons of great soccer ones for sure. Uh, the uh, Just a, a panoply of, of great interviews and conversations and more to come. Uh, the book, by the way, is uh, introduced, uh, forwarded by uh, Shep Messing, another guy. We'd love to get on the show. We've had a a number of entreaties uh, over the years and somewhat still reluctant, but uh, we'll hopefully uh, get him at some point. We have his uh, book, The Education of uh, an American Soccer Player, sitting on our shelves uh, just waiting to be um, uh, discussed uh, in a previous or in an upcoming episode someday, we hope. So uh, let's uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that that will come into be. Uh, Our uh, website, as I said, goodseatsstillavailable.com. The best place, of course, though, to ensure that you get every single stinking episode that we do here is to make sure that you follow or subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts. You should have no problem finding our feeds uh, wherever you get those. If you do, send us a note. We'll try to help you figure it out. But uh, I think uh, you have a hard time trying to not find us uh, wherever you might get your podcasts. Uh, Our email address for... Those kinds of issues, as well as just other stuff, is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You can follow us on various socials. You'll find us on uh, X slash Twitter at Good Seats Still. Uh, you will find us on Instagram and Threads and uh, where else? On uh, Facebook. And you will find us also, I don't know, other places at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, that's uh, our handle there. And what else? Our thanks, of course, as always to the great Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne, audio excellence. Thank you, kind sir. And if you want to follow Tom, uh, elsewhere on his socials, let's see a, b- a bunch of different places. You can follow him. You can follow him on Instagram and on X, uh, at the handle at soccer, Tom Mulroy at soccer, Tom, T O M Mulroy, And, uh, you could also follow him directly on his website at soccer, Tom. So check all of those out. And, um, Again, we appreciate your listening. Uh, Fun conversation this week. Hopefully some more to come for you in the weeks to follow. And uh, I appreciate it to no end, uh, your support of the show. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves. And until next week, we bid you a fond farewell.